From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Father John Tregilio. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. A tremendous Monday to each and every one of you. Thanks so much for starting your week off with EWTN's Open Line. If you'd like to be part of the program, we'd love to have you. The number is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, we've got a number for you. That's 1-205-271-2985. And we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at 1-205-271-2985. You can always send us an email, openline at EWTN.com. That's openline at EWTN.com. And the uh, email folder is a little thin for EWTN's Open Line Monday. So we would welcome any phone call or any emails that you might want to send with your questions for our Monday host, Father John Tregilio. Um, If you're watching this on YouTube or Facebook Live, you can type a question into the chat window and it may find its way to us by the end of the program. I'm Jack Williams, Michael McCall producing the program. Your call screener is Matt Gubensky, and Jeff Burson is handling those social media efforts and he is efforting especially hard <laughs> to keep a firm lasso cyberly onto Father John Tregilio, our host. How are you? <laughs> Fine. I'm, I'm you, doing okay. Could you ask Father Ken to pay the cable bill, please? <laughs> <laughs> we're, having, we're having a hard time rasso, uh, lassoing you in here, but we'll, uh, we'll see how far we make it. Um, okay. Uh, you can at least hear me, though, right? <laughs> yep, I can hear you. We can see you. So that's... It's 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 we couldn't ask for more at this moment, <laughs> other than for this moment to be repeated for about fifty nine more moments. Um, we have an email from uh, Mike, and he says, uh, "Dear Father Tregilio, if during Mass the priest doesn't hold the chalice or at least have his hand touching it while pronouncing the words of consecration, would the wine actually become the precious blood, and would there be a valid Mass?" Yes, he um, he should hold it, but it doesn't affect the validity because as long as he's intending to consecrate the bread and wine into the body and blood of Christ, and he says those exact words, then him not touching the chalice or the patent or the host would not affect the validity. But for it to be licit, uh, he would need to do that. So, uh, and of course, someone should point this out to the priest that he's not doing what he's supposed to do, but it would be a valid Mass and valid Holy Eucharist. Have you ever had anybody approach you with potential liturgical (laughs) abuses on their mind? Not from me. (laughs) (laughs) But I get a lot of emails from people who, Mm -hmm. and sadly, it's it's not necessarily the priest's fault. He had bad training. I mean, at Mount St. Mary's, we we make sure we go over all the sacraments, um, the rituals, the rubrics of the Missal, but some places... um, they're a little deficient, and so it could be that, or the priest could just be very lax, 
or worst case scenario, he doesn't care. He wants to, you know, do his own thing. And, and those are the most grievous offenses. You know, I had a priest once give some advice in this area that I thought was, was very prudent, and I've always remembered it. And he said that, that there certainly are people in the world that have axes to grind against one thing or another and maybe have defiant natures to begin with. But in these matters, it would be really charitable to not assume that your priest is one of those people, and this is one of those areas. Mm-hmm. And you might just ask him, if you don't understand something, don't accuse him of <laughs> engaging in liturgical abuse, but rather ask him, you know, why did you do this, that, or the other thing? And then at least you'll know where you're coming from when you start to have the discussion, huh? Oh, yeah. I mean, again, you know... Uh, Ask the priest, and you don't want to sort of challenge him in front of all the other parishioners outside of church, <laughs> but uh, make an appointment, see him, um, because sometimes the guy just needs to be um, reminded or pointed out or give him opportunity to explain himself, and you might be uh, doing a, a great um, act of charity in doing that, but again, you want to always uh, use fraternal correction with charity. And, you know, depending upon the situation, you might find out that you're not the liturgical scholar that you were, huh? <laughs> yeah. I, you might find out that, if you, like, I had somebody correct, not a, a friend of mine, though, but he was using the 1917 Code of Canon Law, and my friend had to point out, and we're under the 83 Code, so that <laughs> superseded it. <laughs> oh, goodness. So we've got some open lines for you and plenty of time for your phone calls at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833 833- Two eight eight three nine eight six. Emily would like to know. She says she's a new Catholic and she's looking for some information on what exactly a Marian devotion entails. Can you help her? Mm. Well, Marian devotion uh, obviously is very distinct and separate from adoration and worship, which belong belong exclusively to God. That's the first commandment: no other gods. But Marian devotion is honoring Mary because she's the mother of Jesus and she's our spiritual mother because he gave her to us at the foot of the cross when he said, behold thy mother. So Marian devotion is this filial devotion that we have to Mary as our spiritual mother. She doesn't replace Jesus, but she is the intercessor par excellence who then goes directly to her son. And obviously, you know, Jesus uh, wants this to happen. He allowed her to uh, bring it to his attention at the wedding feast of Cana that they have no more wine. And uh, he could have figured that out on his own because he's got had a divine intellect. But uh, her participation in that um, allows us then to give her that wonderful devotion, which is not adoration. And basically it's just having this like a you know, true devotion uh, to Our Lady. Say Alphonsus de Liguori uh, wrote a beautiful book on that. All right. You need to put on your. Uh, did Father Benedict Rochelle leave you a uh, a psychology Beretta to put on in situations? Nathan, he gave me a hood. He gave me a hood. There you go. <laughs> Nathan writes in: Is anxiety a spiritual thing that we can control, or something else? Oh, well, that's a good one. Um, there is a psychological um, condition of anxiety which can be treated with uh, therapy and sometimes with medication. And then there's a spiritual anxiety, which is similar, but is caused from uh, a spiritual source, either a person's um, 
weakness in their uh, spiritual life or it's uh, an attack from the devil. Uh, so that we do make that distinction, and sometimes there's overlap because um, Father um, Dennis McManus, who taught at our seminary at one time, uh, was expert in you know battles with the devil, uh, made it clear that people who do have some psychological challenges are ripe for being also tempted uh, by the devil, but anybody and everybody, even the devil had the hubris to you know, tempt Jesus uh, in the desert. So he's not just going to pick on those people that are um, easier to influence. But uh, yes, there is a spiritual anxiety. Um, we see this in someone who's got scrupulosity. They're always fearful that their sins are not forgiven. And they have to really, that's a strong battle they need. They uh, are engaged in. Then you've got the phys or the psychological anxiety where someone might, like I said, need some professional treatment. All right, you can put your psychologist uh, Beretta away and get out your fashion Beretta. <laughs> Cheryl would like to know if wearing nice shorts to Mass during the week is permissible. It depends on your pastor. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, I, as a pastor, would put a big sign in, this, in the uh, vestibule of the church, please dress modestly, and uh, I... Uh, would let people decide for themselves what is modest, but there will always be times where people would come in, their shorts were a little bit too short, or they were not um, appropriate, okay? Um, they, were, they were not loose-fitting, we could put it that way. And uh, there's where the priest can make announcements, um, not necessarily from the pulpit, because you don't want to embarrass somebody, but you can say in the bulletin or put a sign up that says, please remember that um, this isn't just for your comfort, but you also don't want to be a distraction uh, to people at, at Mass. And I know like in Italy and at the Mother Angelica Shrine, you're not allowed to wear shorts. <laughs> they have um, some trousers you can put on or a, uh, a dress to cover things over. So, you know, people get bummed out here in the United States. You go traveling other, where, uh, other than Hansville, you go to Italy, they won't let you in if you're wearing shorts or uh, open sleeves. They, they are very strict. We're not as here in the United States for most places, but again, you might think it's okay. Ask somebody, um, someone that you, re you know respect their um, opinion. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Plenty of open phone lines and a lot of time for your calls at 833-288-3986. It's Open Line Monday with Father John Tregilio. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. EWTN Religious Catalog is your online destination for gifts and holy reminders. You can buy Catholic by shopping EWTNRC.com today. And you can receive regular emails from EWTN's Religious Catalog. Just visit EWTN.com and click on subscribe. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. You can get in right now at 833-288-3986. First up today is Jim in the great state of Missouri. 
listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Jim, you're on with Father Trujillo. Hey, everyone. So uh, the Supreme Court uh, news, big news, of course, about the possible overturning abortion, got me thinking uh, about the Jew- old Jewish uh, tradition is that abortion was permissible uh, as long as, as I understood it, uh, uh, as long as it benefited the mother. Uh, but uh, at one point, did the Catholic Church or the, the post-Jewish uh well, Christian Church, consider that abortion actually uh, is wrong based on the fact that uh, the, the baby is a human at, at conception. Can you try to explain that to me, how, how it changed from Jewish tradition and became uh, something more defined? Okay, well, I think um, we can have evidence going back to... Um uh, the church fathers and uh, even uh, to the Didache, which uh, condemned abortion. And, um, you know, certainly the celebration of the feast of Jesus's uh, conception and his mother, all right, the feast of the um, <clears throat> incarnation, March 25th, which was ni- nine months before his uh, birthday on December 25th, shows that the church early on had this respect for the fact that at the moment of conception. Now, it may not have been solemnly taught uh, with the exact precision that we have today, but certainly in the early church, going back to even the time of the uh, church fathers and I would say even the apostles, that they understood that life did begin um, at the moment of conception, however that was understood. Now, it's true there was a, a debate among some of the ancient philosophers on when did uh, life begin, and even some medieval theologians and philosophers were discussing, you know, at what moment was the immortal soul uh, created and implanted, and, you know, the church did not make a psalm definition until uh, later. But you going back to apostolic and, and patristic times, uh, we see that this understanding that, yeah, human life is sacred, not just after physical birth, but even during the stages. And so uh, as soon as the soul is created, that was always the understanding that that's a human being. And now we know through science and medicine that, you know, the the DNA that exists uh, within the mother at the moment of conception is distinct from her own. Uh, up until the point of the fertilization of the egg, you know, that that's all her. But once the egg is fertilized, uh, then that embryo, that that uh, uh, human being is now her child, and it's distinct. So um, that's the teaching of the church, and I would say the Hebrew, I mean, I think some of the, the, the Midrash or the Talmud, these are writings of the, of the Hebrew scholars, but of course they, have, they don't have a magisterium like we do in, in the church. And so you could always find some disagreement among some of the Hebrew uh, teachers of the law. But I think among Christianity, especially Catholic Christianity, it's been consistent um, from, from the very beginning. How's that, Jim? I was just wondering on the, the old, where it kind of changed from the Jewish tradition to uh, being more universally recognized. It sounds like maybe it, it was just along with science also. Yeah, I would think so, because, you know— um, Part of the problem is in ancient philosophy, the like Aristotle and Plato, um, p- 
people didn't have the same, not just in terms of technology, but um, doing, say, autopsies and examining the parts of the human body on the inside, that didn't become more uh, prevalent until uh, later, at, at around the time of Christianity. And so a lot of it was guesswork and speculation. And, you know, out of respect for the human body, there were times where they, you know, they they discouraged um, the examination, say, of, of uh, dead people. But that gradually changed. But I think the the teaching that human life begins at the moment of ensoulment, when the soul is created, was always present. It was just w- when exactly did the soul was it created? And I think we see again. Um, that's why abortion was always condemned. Uh, there was never a time in Christian history that uh, abortion was permitted or tolerated. The question was, at what point was the soul created? And now we understand that certainly at the moment of conception. Eight three three two eight eight EWTN is our toll free number. Eight three three two eight eight three nine eight six. Next up is Julie in San Antonio, Texas, listening on Guadalupe Radio. Julie, you're on with Father John. Oh, hi, Father John. Hi. Um, hi. Okay, so going back to the first question you had, um, the, the caller you had, he wanted to know if the mass was. Uh, valid if the priest did not have his hand on the chalice. And you yes. answered that as long as he had the intention, and as long as um, he said the proper words, that it was valid. So my question is, what if there's a bad priest? He's been overtaken by Satan, and he doesn't have the intention. He does it, but he doesn't intend it. Is that valid? And then another two quick follow-up questions... Is it liturgical abuse to not follow the rubrics of the Mass and to hold at the moment of elevation, to elevate the host with just your right hand and then the chalice with just your left hand to be different and to draw attention to yourself? Is that is that liturgical abuse? Okay. <laughs> uh, well, um, the Council of Trent made it very clear that the priest must intend to do what the church does. Uh, it's not required for validity that he intends what the church intends. We have to intend to do what the church does. So if the priest is celebrating Mass, um, even if he's personally um, in mortal sin, God forbid, that's a sacrilege, but it's still valid. If he's a heretic, it's still valid. As long as he's intending to do what the church does, uh, and it's obviously implied by the fact that he's celebrating the Mass, um, that's the guarantee that we have as members of the, you know, members of the church, that that mass is real and that the uh, transubstantiation takes place, and you've got the real presence of the Holy Eucharist uh, under the appearances of bread and wine. So uh, whether or not the priest touches the chalice or the patent or the host uh, is not required for validity. And likewise, um, if he violates the rubrics. As long as it's not necessary, not required for validity, like he has to use grape wine and wheat bread, uh, and say the exact words: "This is my body, and this is my blood." If he does any other aberration of the rubrics, it may not be uh, va- invalid, but it certainly be illicit, and it would be liturgical abuse. So to leave things out, like when priests, um, you know, don't want to wash their fingers uh, during the mass if they um, cut leave parts out of the Eucharistic prayer or whatever, um, any 
shortcuts they may have or innovations that are not strictly in the text. And so, again, you know, we go back to the ancient axiom, you know, um, say the black and do the red. Um, this isn't my mass. This is the mass of Jesus Christ. And so I, as a priest, must follow that precisely. Now, whether the priest elevates the, the host and the chalice um, with both his hands, again, uh, it's not required for validity. And you might have some disagreement on whether or not it's illicit. It's certainly not how we teach them in the seminary. Okay, we want people to... Uh, and again, it's it's you have more stability as you're ha, when you have both hands to elevate the chalice and and the uh, hold the sacred host. But I've seen priests do it with one hand. Um, it's not the preferred method, but I wouldn't say that that was necessarily a liturgical abuse. It's just something that's imprudent. Next up, she's in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania today, listening on Sirius XM Channel One Thirty. Cindy, you're on with Father John. Hi, Father John. I would uh, appreciate it if you could give me a little more clarity on the devotion to the Sacred Heart of Jesus. Okay. Well, devotion to the Sacred Heart, certainly, you know, we have people like St. Gertrude and St. Margaret Mary Alacoque, um, but they're only two of many. Devotion to the Sacred Heart surrounds itself around the fact that Jesus' heart was pierced with the spear of Longinus uh, as he died on Good Friday. And from that sacred heart flowed blood and water. Uh, we see this, um, you know, in, in not just in crucifixes, but certainly in the image of divine mercy, where from Jesus's heart, there's a white uh, ray of light, and then there's a red. And that again symbolizes the blood and the water. The water is uh, symbolic of baptism, the red symbolic of the precious blood uh, that we receive at mass. And so going back to ancient times, um, again, I know some, when I was in, um, the high school seminary, there was some professor was trying to tell us that, you know, uh, in ancient times, people believed that they actually emotions resided in the organ of the heart. And now we know it's in the brain. And so he was trying to tell us that on Valentine's day, you should send a card with a brain on it rather than a heart. Well, <laughs> you know, <laughs> we, we, the, the organ of your heart obviously doesn't think, but it's what the heart represents. You know, we talk about heartache. Okay, you broke my heart. Um, someone is, is in love with someone. They say, you know, you're, you're my heart's desire. It's an, it's, an, it's an analogy, which we still use, just like sunrise and sunset. We're not saying that we believe that uh, the earth is the center of the solar system anymore, uh, like we did before. It's just a, a, a figure of speech. But the image of the sacred heart, that it was pierced, and obviously in, in sacred art, not only do you have the, 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 the marking of the spear, but also you've got the crown of thorns wrapped around the heart of Jesus. Um, again, it's, it's a depiction that helps us in our devotion. And so you think of all the, the things at the heart of Jesus, not just physically, but also because it represents emotionally what Jesus felt for us, that he loved us unto death. So even though, yes, he had a physical brain in his sacred humanity, um, putting a brain okay, uh, in a, on an image or a statue is not going to have the same effect as seeing Jesus' heart. I remember when I was a, a parochial vicar uh, at Seven Sorrows in Middletown, Diocese of Harrisburg, there was a, a parishioner I brought communion, and their neighbor had a statue of the sacred heart, but their neighbor wasn't Catholic, and Jesus was pointing to his sacred heart, but because they weren't Catholic, they had his sand blown off. So he just 
pointing to his chest. Wow. And I said, that's kind of odd. <laughs> Very strange. Wow. Cindy, thank you so much for your call. Uh, Tom Price here. Uh, Jack had to step away, so I'm going to finish out the hour with Father John Tregilio. We do have a couple of lines open for you right now at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Open line Monday with Father John Tregilio in progress here on EWTN. Do give us a call. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Hey, glad to have you along for the ride here on EWTN's Open Line Monday with Father John Tregilio. We do have a couple of lines open for you at the moment. 833-288-EWTN. If you have a question for Father John, 833-288-3986. Let's go to Matthew now in Fort Wayne, listening on the Great Redeemer Radio. Hey there, Matthew, what's on your mind today? I just... um recently went to confession, and I feel like I'm always rushed out, and it doesn't make me want to go, and I thought we have to go being Catholic once every year at a minimum, but I'll tell you, when when I go there, I feel like I'm going to be lambasted. Hmm. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm very sorry for that, and the, yeah. and, and the priest, uh, you know, should never, ever, you know, um, push you out or rush you out. I do know as a, when I was a pastor for 16 years, um, one of the things you always kept in the back of your mind, however, is if you're the only priest there and you're hearing confessions, say I had um, confessions on Saturday from like uh, three to four and then four o'clock was mass. Mm -hmm. If there were 20 or 30 people waiting in line to go to confession, you try to get it as many as possible because you don't know how many of those people are in mortal sin. They want to be able to go to communion and God forbid, you know, if some if if they died, uh, you'd want to be able to go go to heaven. Sure. They, they, so that's in the back of my. But certainly, if if you feel in any way, shape, or form the priest is rushing you, I would go to another priest. Don't you know? It's like if you if you find a doctor you don't like their bedside manner, find another one. Yeah. Don't punish yourself just because the priest is too hasty or even rude. Uh, your soul is more important than than that. Matthew, thank you so much for your call. We have a line open for you right now at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Father, here is a question from Pietro. He says, I have heard the statement, quote, Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. What does that mean? Okay, well, the the, the term Lord, uh, Master, Dominus, mm-hmm. um, means that he has dominion, he has authority. And as the son, he receives that authority from the father. But uh, we also have to remember metaphysically, ontologically, uh, the father, the son, and the Holy Spirit, they're three persons and one God. They're all equal. They share the same divine intellect, the same divine will. But in our human minds, we have to use what we call appropriation, Mm -hmm. where we uh, assign to each person a different act, although all three are always operational. So, for instance, we say God the Father created, God the Son redeemed, God the Holy Spirit sanctifies, but all three are are at work. So Jesus is Lord because the Father is Lord, and so is the, the Holy Spirit. It's just that we ascribe to Jesus that particular title, uh, mm-hmm. Jesus is my Lord and my all. Very good. It's an open line Monday with Father John Tregilio here on EWTN Radio, going now to Walter in New York, listening on YouTube. Hey, Walter, what's on your mind today? Hi, good afternoon. Um, 
Good afternoon, Father. Hello. I have a question concerning... Yes, can you hear me? Yes, yes. Go, go right ahead. Sure. I have a question concerning the angels. Now, uh, before Christ, uh, the resurrection or the incarnation, did the, the, uh, did the angels' purposes change? Did their purpose change? Whether it be the dark angels that fell or the good angels, did their purpose change after Christ? For instance, were there guardian angels prior uh, to Jesus coming? Okay. Uh, that's a good question. Yes, the the angels, the, the ones who were righteous, the two-thirds who went to heaven, mm -hmm. uh, their function has always been the same. They're messengers, or like in the highest um, of the choirs, uh, the seraphim, they just praise and adore God uh, morning, noon, and night constantly. The fallen angels, once they disobeyed, that was like one-third of them, when they went against God and they were cast into hell, um, you know, they were there well before the creation of mankind. Uh, so before Adam and Eve were even uh, created, the angels and the fallen angels had their jobs sort of established. And Jesus re even refers to guardian angels. So we believe that there were guardian angels well in the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. We even see Abraham and other figures in the Old Testament being greeted by angels. Uh, so yes, their their sort of their job and their their job uh, assignment. Uh, pre-existed the, the coming of Christ. All right. And uh, we thank you so much for your call, Walter. It's Open Line Monday with Father John here on EWTN. Fascinating question here, Father, from Arnold, who says, I am a Buddhist, and I don't understand hell. Am I going there as a Buddhist? Is it there just to scare people to be virtuous? Well, uh, it's more than just a scare. It's like uh, I have uh, Italian relatives, and they're, they're, some of them are a little superstitious. Okay. They won't use the word cancer because they think if, they, if you say it, it means someone's going to get it. So they, oh. my aunts would talk about the C word. Oh, wow. um, hell, hell is more than just a concept. It's a reality. And hell is the absence of God. And that's the worst state anyone could be in. Now, hell was created for the devil and the fallen angels, but human beings can also go there. And it's a place you want to avoid at all costs. Just like if you were going to the doctor and the doctor said, okay, uh, you got a tumor here. It's either malignant or benign. If it's malignant, you want it, you want it taken care of right yeah, away. You want yeah. it removed or radiation or chemo. In the same way with mortal sin, it, it opens the possibility of someone being denied uh, the beatific vision. And uh, that's what hell is utter isolation from God and everyone else. And because it, it's real, we want people to not just – be afraid of it. We want them to avoid it. Mm. We want them to long for heaven. So as a Buddhist, if you were born and raised in, in, in the Buddhist religion, uh, the Lord wants you to look at what has been revealed because, you know, Buddha and uh, some of the other mm. founders of religion, none of them died and on the third day rose from the dead. Jesus did that. Yeah. Jesus is the revelation of God the Father. So I encourage you to read more about uh, Christianity, Catholic Christianity in particular, and um, you know, even look at maybe our book uh, Catholicism for Dummies, yeah. and just see does it make some sense? Does it, you know, answer some questions? Um, because you know you're responsible for what you know, but what also you could have known, but whatever reason you didn't look into. 
And I can certainly endorse uh, that wonderful book of yours, Catholicism for Dummies. Uh, whether or not I'm a dummy, I don't know. You'd have to ask. <laughs> you'd have to ask my wife about that. But I can tell you this: that book is fantastic and really answered a lot of my questions. So good stuff there. And uh, thank you so much uh, for your uh, question there, Arnold. Let's go now to Deb, a first-time caller in Hampton, Virginia, listening on Sirius XM channel 130. Deb, what's on your mind today? Hi there. I just had a real simple question that I didn't know the answer to when my convert husband asked me, which is, what <laughs> side did was Jesus pierced on, the left or the right? Because we've seen it both, or, you know, not twice, but... Some some crucifixes had it on the left, and some crucifixes had it on the right. Like, I don't I don't know. Okay. <laughs> well, I think you know when you look at crucifixes and or uh, statues of of Jesus being crucified, um, the more common one is that it's on his uh, right side. Um, that doesn't mean that you know if you have a picture or a statue mm-hmm. of him being pierced on the left side that it's wrong. Um, I think if you look at the Shroud of Turin. Um, I think that indicates it was on the right side. Uh, but again, even the Shroud of Turin is not an article of faith. Mm-hmm. So you can say I, it's, it's part of uh, private revelation, even though I, I believe it's real. Um, it's like any Marian apparition. So what we do know is Jesus was pierced, uh, in his, uh, in his, um, uh, in his sacred heart. And, uh, whether it's the, the left or the right, um, you know, I, 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 I personally think it was on the right side, but uh, if some medical person could say, no, no, it was on this side, okay, uh, <laughs> it's not going to destroy my faith, all right? Very good. All right. Good to know that. Deb, thanks so much for your call. Jim asks this question, when we die, we will go to heaven, hell, or purgatory. Well, if we're already in heaven, why would we be judged again during the second coming? How does that work? <laughs> well, that's a good question. Yeah. It, it's not an appeal. It's not going to the Supreme Court. Okay. Um, what happens is at the um, uh, particular judgment when you die determines where you go. The general judgment is merely a ratification of all the previous judgments mm-hmm. so that everyone in heaven knows why these other people are in heaven and why those who went to hell went to hell. So uh-huh. it's merely a, a, a ratification and uh, uh, ex- not, maybe not an explanation is a good word, but a manifestation mm-hmm. of all the prior particular judgments. Jim, thanks so much uh, for your question. Let's go to Jeff now in Dallas, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Hey, Jeff, what's on your mind today, sir? Hey, how you doing? Hey. Um, I, my question is uh, dovetailing on the one about conception before in the soul. Um, how did the church actually determine? Uh, how does the church determine that the soul is created at the moment of conception, rather than it the soul already being in heaven, uh, and then coming down into the into the body at conception? Okay, well that's that that's a good um, question. Obviously, someone like Plato, who was a um, a Greek pagan philosopher, he believed in a world of universals where the, would sort of be um, akin to or uh, have affinity for this idea of pre-existence of the soul. Aristotle, however, and you know, obviously we know St. Thomas Aquinas uh, used him uh, a lot in his Summa Theologica, but going back again to the fathers of the Church, um, the belief was that uh, the human soul is created at the same moment that human being, the body, is created. Because if all these souls are in heaven— you can't leave heaven. Once you're in heaven, you're there for all eternity. That's why the angels were created outside of heaven, 
and then they were put to a test. The good ones went to heaven, the bad ones went to hell. If a human being's existing prior to their conception, well, if they're in heaven, you can't leave. So there must the church concludes then that the soul must be created at the moment of, of the bodies being created. And so uh, it's at conception that the physical body of the embryo or the you know, zygote, whatever you want to use scientifically, mm-hmm. all happens simultaneously. Okay. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So Mary is conceived, Jesus, at the moment of the Annunciation, and within three days she goes to visit her cousin Elizabeth. Elizabeth, six months pregnant, John the Baptist is leaping for joy. Jesus is truly present within Mary, not months later, but just a few days at the most. Mm. Jeff, thank you so much for your call. It is Open Line Monday with Father John Tregilio here on EWTN Radio. Got a great show for you cooked up tomorrow for Take Two with Jerry and Debbie. That'll be at noon Eastern. Great topic here. How far back do you and your spouse go? I have to think about that for my own <laughs> my own sweet wife. We were friends for years before the idea of dating even uh, popped up, and that seemed to work out pretty well for us. Take two with Jerry and Debbie tomorrow at noon Eastern on EWTN Radio. Let's go to uh, Mary now, a first-time caller in Atlanta, listing on our great station there, The Quest. Hey, Mary, what's on your mind today? Hey, um... Hi, I'm 81 years old. I've been a Catholic all my life, and for the first time I thought about this question in the last year or two. If Adam and Eve had two sons, I think Cain and Abel, how was the world procreated? Okay, that I, <laughs> I'm glad you asked that because I got that my first um, month as a priest. Really? I was, teaching, I was teaching in the Catholic grade school, and the kiddies asked me, mm. how, does, how does the whole human race... The Bible, Genesis, does not explain, like a biology book, uh, exactly all the sequences of creation. What Genesis teaches us is that God is the creator, and certainly, um, you know, we learn that uh, uh, that the human race flows from Adam and Eve. Uh, Pope Pius XII, through Humani Generis, in the 1950s, affirms this as uh, Catholic teaching is called monogenism, that the human race comes from one uh, set of parents as opposed to polygenism, mm-hmm. where it comes from several. And two uh, British scientists in the 80s uh, discovered uh, the reality, or they showed, they found evidence that uh, through mitochondrial DNA, all human beings can be traced to one woman. And when they issued this result, someone in the press then coined the, the the word Eve from Genesis, but the two scientists were agnostics. They didn't uh, use that word, but they affirmed what we always believed in faith is that we came from the... Now, how do you get from Adam and Eve to everybody? We don't know. Um, just like, you know, when Adam and Eve had Cain and Abel, Cain kills Abel. Well, now there's only three people, Adam, Eve, and Cain, where does Cain find his wife? He marries someone, okay, and mm-hmm. starts his own lineage. Then they have another kid named Seth. The Bible has a lot of unanswered questions. That doesn't mean it contradicts reality. It just means that these are purviews of science and medicine, and uh, in terms of faith and theology, we go for the ultimate answer that God is the creator. But the in-between stuff, the details, um, the stuff that is of mathematics and physics and chemistry— that's all proper to another discipline. Okay, Mary, thank you so much for your call. 
Pamela has a question about purgatory. Is purgatory derived from the book of Maccabees, and why does the church teach to pray for the souls in purgatory? Okay, um, yes, Maccabees is one of several uh, biblical uh, supports for purgatory, but Maccabees is is one of the clearest ones, even though they don't use the word purgatory. um, The soldiers uh, who died, uh, after they were dead, they prayed for them. So if they're in heaven, they don't need any prayers. If they're in hell, prayers won't do any good. So there must be something in between heaven and hell mm. in which prayers would be efficacious. And so the church has always prayed for the dead in terms of uh, the temporal punishment due to sin that was not expiated in life. So again, if the soul's in hell, nothing can help them. If they're in heaven, they don't need any help. But there must be a, a period uh, of um, a state of cleansing. That's where they got the word uh, purgatory from, mm-hmm. purgatus, meaning okay. to be cleansed. So our prayers somehow, some way, can help in that uh, alleviation of that uh, punishment due to sin. Very good. Pamela, thank you for your email. By the way, if you'd like to send us an email for a future show, the address is openline at EWTN.com, openline at EWTN.com. Be sure you put uh, Father John in the subject line or Monday in the subject line so we can uh, do a little uh, mixing and matching, uh, you know, get the right question to the right host. Gilbert has a tough question here. What is the Catholic Church's stance on suicide, Father? Yes, the Church is against suicide um, for various reasons. Mm -hmm. And certainly when someone commits suicide, uh, we have a greater appreciation for the fact that a lot of people are suffering from different kinds of depression, Mm -hmm. whether it's clinical or not. So unlike in olden times where uh, if a person committed suicide, they were excommunicated, they weren't allowed to have a a Catholic burial, we no longer uh, impose those penalties because uh, the church's understanding is that suicide is still wrong. Mm-hmm. It's a sin. But the people who commit it, a lot of them don't have the full culpability because this might be a mental illness. It might be extreme stress. So we're not condoning it. Yeah. Okay, it, it's a it's a form of self euthanasia. Uh, just like euthanasia is wrong for someone to kill someone, it's wrong for you to kill yourself. But again, uh, I've I've known a lot of people. I've known a priest who committed suicide, and it was it was a very strong case of the worst type of clinical depression. And oh. so we, we were confident that, you know, mm-hmm. he wasn't going to be uh, roasting in hell for that. But mm-hmm. uh, you pray for the family uh, who has to endure their that loss. And, yes, you pray for the soul because, you know, maybe they're in purgatory. Sure. Appreciate that. Thank you so much for your question. Here's one now from Lisa, who's watching us this afternoon on Facebook. Lisa says, Father, my niece is getting married by her brother-in-law, who got his, quote, ordination off the Internet. Oh, boy. Uh, None of the parties, yeah, none of the parties involved are Catholic, but being a devout Catholic myself, it seems to desecrate the sanctity of marriage. Would I be sending the message that I approve if I attend the ceremony? Any advice you have uh, would be very helpful. Thank you, and God bless. That's from Lisa. And what was her relationship? Uh, this is her niece. Her niece, yeah. Mm-hmm. I would say don't go uh, on, only under the most um, dire circumstances would I advise someone to go if there was like their son or daughter mm-hmm. uh, or brother or sister, and the, and, the, and the consequence would be they never speak to you again. But you have to express to them your disappointment, um, you know, you go, but don't 
have any big smile on your face, no wedding present. Um, but normally speaking, this is a, a, a further extension of, of a familial relation. Don't go, but let them know why you're not going because yeah. this is not uh, a, a sacramental. Now, if they're not Catholic, okay, uh, and this is their first marriage, as long as it's legal in the eyes of the state, it would be considered uh, a valid marriage. Uh, Catholics and Eastern Orthodox must be married by a, a priest or deacon, but mm -hmm. um, if it, they're non-Catholic Christians, you know, we accept that as, as a valid marriage, but I would say, you know, you, as a Catholic, you don't want to give the wrong message either. Right, right. Elisa, thank you so much for your call, your uh, question there uh, via Facebook this afternoon. Here's one from Lucas. If you don't have something to confess, should you still go to confession? Yes. <laughs> okay. And, and I'm just reminded that poor gentleman who was on earlier in our show today, and the priest was kind of uh, pushing him out, uh, yes. moving him along too yes. quickly. Um, you can make a devotional confession where you just uh, mention the venial sins you've committed mm -hmm. um, or just say, I want the grace of the sacrament. Um, but remember, confession is not spiritual direction. So you're not there to talk about your overall spirituality. You're there. It's almost like the ER. When you go to ER, they want to know where does it hurt? Where mm -hmm. are you bleeding? Okay. Mm -hmm. And when you go to the GP, your general practitioner, then you've got a time to look over your triglycerides and your um, all your glucosides and all everything that. else. Yeah. Okay. Appreciate that. Uh, Joe is listening to us in Spokane on the great Sacred Heart Radio. Hey, Joe, what's on your mind today? Hi there. Thanks for taking the call. I'm not a Catholic, so this is going to be kind of a weird question, but I listen to you guys all the time, and I appreciate the the at least uh, uh, doctrinal soundness and, and thoughtfulness of the answers. So here goes. Um, I've got a, a friend, he's a long-time happy marriage, not a Catholic. Uh, his wife is intent upon being confirmed and joining the Catholic Church. He's against this, and I'm just curious as to hear the, the Catholic teaching, if there is such a thing, on whether or not she should defer to the headship of her husband in this matter, or it's more important in the Church's view to uh, get right with the Catholic Church. Okay. Okay, well, that's... Um... It's interesting, but I would say not uh, an extremely rare situation. Um, her spiritual uh, betterment is always a, a paramount, and normally speaking, you know, she should ha have deference uh, to her husband uh, because you know she did promise um, that relationship. Mm -hmm. But li likewise, if if her husband were to ask her to do something that was immoral or wrong, she'd have to say no. Um, if the Holy Spirit is leading her in this direction and she says no, uh, that would be wrong too in the mm -hmm. eyes of God. So mm -hmm. even though her husband doesn't have malicious intent, um, she doesn't have to obey him with blind obedience, mm -hmm. okay, uh, under normal circumstances she should, but uh, just like she can't do something wrong, if this is the the path that God is leading her towards, only she's obligated. She's not saying he has to become Catholic, right. but he has to go start going to church with her. Mm -hmm. um, so I would say she needs to do it in a way that's uh, charitable, but also as a husband, he needs to support her. Yeah, you know, uh, Dr. David Anders has tackled this question a number of times on the Call to Communion program, and he he often says, well, you can always uh, refer to your conscience and just say, look, my, my conscience is telling me that this is something that I really need to do, and I, I, so I have to follow my conscience. So that seems... and, if he, and if he really loves her, mm -hmm. he's not going to say, oh, well, I, I, I 
demand you do this. He's going to yeah. say, honey, if this is what you feel you need to do, I'm going to support you. One would hope so. Appreciate that. Thank you so much uh, for your call today. And Patricia says, how do we define grace? Someone told me we merit grace, but we also receive initial grace free of merit. So what are the different kinds of grace, and where are some places we can find them in the Bible? Mm. Well, certainly... Um, we make a distinction between uncreated grace, which is the indwelling of the Holy Trinity Mm -hmm. that takes place at baptism. And then God has created grace, which is a gift from the word gratia, which means gift. So no one really merits grace. It's a gift from God. Sanctifying grace makes us holy, makes us a child of God. We receive that in, in baptism, but also in the other sacraments, particularly in when you go to communion and also when you go to confession and you have a mortal sin, uh, sanctifying grace is restored. Actual grace is a grace that is given to us to help us do good things. So any good that we do actually can only take place because God has given us the grace to do it. Yeah. It's like the it's like the battery in that little Energizer bunny rabbit. <laughs> without grace, without the batteries, he can't do anything. Yeah. And without grace, we can't do any good. So you don't merit grace, but the more grace you accept and cooperate, the more you're able to receive. Very good. Patricia, thanks for your question. We'll close out with this one from Georgia. If you believe in God, but not Jesus, can you still go to heaven? You can go to heaven if you don't know that Jesus is the Son of God and the second person of the Trinity. If it's through no fault of your own. However, if you know this and you reject it, you are liable for that uh, bad judgment. But if you don't know or it's not your fault you don't know, mm-hmm. okay, then that we call invincible ignorance. But you, once you start asking the questions, you need to find out what the answers are. All right, very good. We want to thank everybody for all their phone calls today, all of your emails, your texts, uh, your questions via YouTube and Facebook. It's been a fantastic ride. Uh, Glad to be here to uh, finish up the program for Jack Williams. Father, could you leave us with your blessing, please? Absolutely. Benedica vos omnipotens Deus, Pater, et Filius, et Spiritus Sanctus. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Father. Appreciate you, as always. Don't forget, tomorrow at this same time, it'll be uh, Father Wade Menezes taking your calls uh, here on Open Line Tuesday. Then on Wednesday, of course, Father Mitch Pacwa, along with all sorts of uh, great questions and uh, things from the Bible, things, teachings of the Church. And uh, on Thursday, you know, we roll on with... uh, Father uh, Brian Milady, and then on Friday we wrap things up with Colin Donovan answering all your theological questions. On behalf of everybody here, I'm Tom Price along with Father John Tregilio. Thanks for joining us. See you next time here on EWTN's Open Line. God bless.